This was the week when uh, certain emails were, were leaked uh, in regard to the White House and led to the President, uh, President Trump, seeking to show the British ambassador, uh, Kim Dara, who was boss. Uh, Trump, of course, went on the offensive with Twitter messages, uh, disinvited uh, Dara from uh, various functions and effectively closed off his access to the White House. Uh, it was an unprecedented act of hostility to a British ambassador and it was designed to demonstrate the authority of the president. He would not brook any such disparagements of himself or his White House staff. And then we had another show of authority later on in the week. Uh, there was the case of the British warships being sent into the Straits of Hormuz uh, in order to repel Iranian gunboats that had been seeking to harass uh, a British oil tanker uh, that was going through the Straits. And this in turn had arisen because in Gibraltar, Marines, British Marines had seized an Iranian tanker uh, which allegedly was breaking the oil embargo on Syria. And the ensuing uh, kickback from Iran was met by what used to be known as gunboat diplomacy. The British sent in uh, one and then two warships in order to assert authority. Jesus' authority is so, so different from the way that the world asserts authority. Jesus is demonstrating authority uh, in the verses that we're looking at this morning, but his authority is demonstrated in acts of, of healing, in acts of, of compassion, in acts of gentleness, in acts of inclusion when the outsider is brought near to God. And all of this is designed to follow on from the, the Sermon on the Mount. There's a close con connection between what has gone before. When it, actually, any time when we are looking at a, a, a discrete, a, a, a separate passage of the Bible, and we're, we're asking the question, what's going on here? Uh, what does the Holy Spirit, as the original author, wish me to understand from this? Uh, a good thing always is to look at the, the, the context, to see what uh, came before, and then to look at what concludes the section. And we've got a good example of that here because uh, if you look back at the ending of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, there is a, a reflection of the crowd and what Jesus has said. And then at the end of this section, Matthew uh, quotes from Isaiah and he is reflecting on what has gone before. So uh, at the end of chapter 7, uh, we're told that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught with authority. He had authority, not as the scribes uh, and teachers of the law. And then at the end of the section, uh, we have a quote from Isaiah 61. And uh, Matthew writes, This was what was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. And what's significant about that is that this passage in Isaiah is speaking about the cross. When we look at the, the full context, it's referring to uh, Jesus, the Messiah who will come, going to uh, a cruel death to bear sin. And Matthew, as we'll comment again later on, is saying that all of the brokenness that Jesus has come and has dealt with is a result of 
the fall is a result of sin. And Jesus, in going to the cross, is going to be providing the solution to human sinfulness. Well, the crowds have been mightily impressed by Jesus' authority. And while they might be, Pressed at a number of levels. First of all, uh, there have been in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeated uh, saying, uh, You have heard it said of old, but I say to you. Now, when Jesus is making this contrast, he's not contrasting the Bible, he's not contrasting the scriptures, he's contrasting what the teachers of the law said about the scriptures. And he's contradicting them. Uh, and that was quite startling because if a rabbi, if a Jewish teacher got up in the synagogue and wanted to demonstrate authority, they would quote from another source. So uh, Rabbi Halel said this, uh, Gamaliel says this, and Jesus doesn't do anything of the sort. In fact, uh, he, he knocks them out, he discounts them and says, I say to you, he speaks as one with authority. But As well as that, uh, he has also said that uh, he has come to fulfill the law. He claimed to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, all the law and the prophets are pointing to him. Uh, He is the one uh, who is, in that sense, greater than the law and the prophets, and therefore greater than Moses, which is a startling assertion of authority. And then, uh, thirdly, In verses 21 to 23 of chapter 7, Jesus has said that he alone is the one who will determine whether people enter the kingdom of God. He says on the last day, people will come to him and they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do many miracles? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And I will say, I never knew you. So he is making this outstanding claim to being the judge of all the earth. Uh, who will open or close the door to those who stand before him. And having shown his authority in word, Jesus now, having come down and having completed his Sermon on the Mount, goes on to show that this authority is backed up by deed. He is not just someone who talks a good talk, but his authority is that of one of power and deed. And his teaching, uh, just as it demonstrated the uh, inclusion of those who were outsiders, the entry into the kingdom of God of the most unlikely candidates, poor in spirit, uh, those who hunger and thirst, those who mourn, now in his deeds demonstrates the same thing, gets under the radar of the people who are watching to include those who would normally have been thought of as outsiders, a leper, Gentile, and a little old lady. The principle uh, is being repeated that it is those who are on the outside, those who are marginalised, those who are alienated, whom the gospel reaches out to, and makes part of the family. So let's look then at these three examples that illustrate this principle of of inclusion and demonstrate the authority of Jesus uh, indeed. First of all, there's the leper. The leper, the man who 
uh, first came uh, to Jesus after he came down was a leper. Now, the, the, the scholars are always quick to point out that the leprosy that's mentioned in the New Testament uh, may well not be uh, the kind of leprosy that we uh, think of today as Hansen's disease. Uh, but many of the conditions which were uh, abroad in, in the first century were equally, uh, equally repugnant. Uh, leprosy itself causes the withering away of the extremities of limbs, the loss of feeling, uh, of disfigurement. But perhaps even more was the impact that it had on the, on the whole person. There was that exclusion, that sense of being uh, under uh, God's ban. Uh, the, the fact of having leprosy meant that you, you were for, forbidden to come into contact with other people. And so lepers would often live in leper colonies outside centres of population. A leper couldn't come into the, the, the temple to worship God. So not only were you excluded from social company, you were excluded from worship. Uh, you went around declaring that you were unclean, unclean, or ringing a bell so that people could scatter before you came. Now, you can imagine the impact that would have on anybody. It's a, a dreadful thing to feel that you were outside the, the normal orbit of uh, social and religious company. You were an outsider in the most keenly felt sense of that word. And it was incurable. If you contracted leprosy, uh, you were to go to the priest, and the, the priest could recognize the condition. The priest could mark you down as a leper. And the law uh, of Moses had certain things which had to be done. But the priest had no power to cure you of your leprosy. He could recognize it. He could certify you. Uh, if God chose to clean you, then he would certify you as cleansed. But he couldn't cure you himself. Notice a number of things about the, the leper and his approach to Jesus. First of all, there's the boldness with which he comes to Jesus. Here's somebody uh, who's being told repeatedly that he's to stay away from other people. And he comes to Jesus. He makes a bold approach to Jesus. Now, there's, there are crowds, as usual, pressing around Jesus. But this man has a secret weapon. <laughs> He just needs to come and the, the crowds part like a, like a wave before him. They don't want to be anywhere near this guy with leprosy. So he gets close to Jesus. And he is quite open about his condition. Uh, and that, that is one of the wonderful things about this man. Uh, he, he is under no illusion that he has a desperate, uncurable, disfiguring, isolating condition. Let's pause there. That's one of the things that we often lack before we come to Christ is an awareness of our condition. We are unwilling to recognize the sinfulness of sin. And here is this man who is a lesson to us. If we would be saved, that is a starting point. We have to recognize that we need a savior, that we need to be saved. So often we really block up the way to Jesus by our self-righteousness, by failing to see how desperate our need is. You know, I do my best. I, I'm sincere, but trying to, 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 to get on. I'm as good as the next person. God will accept me. Uh, he, he wouldn't turn uh, somebody like me away who does his best. 
and we're comparing ourselves to other people and all the time we're trying to shore up our sense of, of deservedness. And what we do actually is that we come to Jesus eventually with hands so full of our own self-righteousness that there's no space for the grace of God. We exclude grace. But not so with this leper. He comes recognizing his need and he comes with faith. Uh, He believes that Jesus is able to save him. He believes that Jesus has power. And wonderfully, uh, he, he says, if you are willing, you can heal me. So not only does he believe that Jesus can, that he has power, but he also recognizes that it is of mercy. So there is always this discretionary element in God's bestowal of his goodness. He's not indebted to us. Now, once again, we need to kind of get rid of um, another modern barrier to, 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 to salvation. That, and that's our own sense of, of merit, you know, our entitlement. We feel that, that we, you know, by the time we come to realize that we're in need of something, we're actually really entitled to get it. <laughs> and we must come and cast ourselves on Jesus' mercy. That is the way, the proper way to, to come to God. Uh, in the knowledge that God is good, that his character is to do good things, but at the same time recognizing that he does not owe us one. It is of mercy, through and through. He comes and he kneels at Jesus' feet and shows his reverence and his dependence and all of these things appropriate coming to the Savior. And then Jesus does something wonderful. He reaches out and he touches the leper. Is that just amazing? Can you think of the the impact that that touch made on this poor man who had been isolated for so long? He had been used to people shrinking away from him, doing their best to make sure that they weren't contaminated, that even their clothing didn't come in contact with other people. Uh, And there was the health and there was the religious aspect. Uh, Health-wise, you didn't want to contract leprosy. Uh, Religiously, you didn't want to be defiled, so you couldn't attend worship. Jesus touches the leper. And it's an act of, of compassion, and it's a demonstration of authority. Why authority? Because if you touched a leper, you would contract defilement, Jesus touches the leper and the reverse happens. The leper is cured of his defilement and Jesus is not defiled. He is not ceremonially unclean as a result. He is Lord not just over leprosy but over the law. Wonderful words from Jesus. I am willing. Be clean. Words of power. The word that spoke light into the darkness now speaks healing and wholeness to this leper. The word of Jesus coming with authority and power driving out this man's incurable condition. And immediately, instantly, the leper is made whole again. He is cured and he is made uh, fit for human company and religious worship. No partial healing. 
immediate and complete healing. And he's not only cleansed, but he is included. He's brought right back into the midst of the community, including the worshipping community. And for that to happen, uh, he has to be recognised as clean by the priest. And so Jesus tells him, go to the priest and make the offering prescribed by the law as a testimony to them. That's very, very interesting. Jesus, uh, as throughout all his life, obeyed the law. So you see Jesus obeying the law, obeying the requirements of the law, and yet showing that he is also Lord of the law. He is the law giver. Uh, and therefore, the, the man in going to the priests will be a testimony to them. He was a man they knew had leprosy, and now they can't deny that he is healed of leprosy. Only God could heal leprosy. They have evidence that Jesus cured the man. Why do they not believe him? So the man now acts as testimony against them. Uh, he is the evidence that they, that they must respond to, that Jesus is Lord. They, as the representatives of the law of Moses, can only identify sickness and sin. Jesus has the power and the authority to remove both. He is the Lord from glory. The leper. Secondly, uh, there is the centurion. Uh, this next man is also somebody who was excluded. He was an outsider, uh, but not because of illness, but because of nationality. Uh, he is a Gentile. Uh, he is a Roman centurion. And yet he has remarkable faith in Jesus. The word for servant indicates that uh, the person who was afflicted by this paralysis was a young man, uh, a youth or a boy. And the centurion, uh, who's obviously a man of, of tender feeling, is vexed over his servant's illness. Uh, this uh, young man is suffering greatly. And this man, who would be in equal measure feared and loathed by the Jews because he was a representative of the, the conquering people, comes to Jesus, this great Jewish teacher, and asks Jesus to uh, heal him, heal his, his servant. And Jesus' immediate response must have, well, it, it, it was so unexpectedly overwhelming that it catches the centurion off guard. Jesus, I will go and heal him. And the remarkable thing is that the centurion did not expect Jesus to say that he would go. He would go to his house. If he would heal him, that would be wonderful. But he didn't expect him to go. And so he kind of, uh, he's almost caught off balance. And he says, you know, it's, that wouldn't be necessary, but just say the word. I'm not worthy that you should come uh, under my roof. But say the word and my servant will be healed. And we have this really instructive uh, working through of the principle of authority. Here's a man who knows all about authority. He's, he's in a chain of command. He has people who are over him, uh, who are powerful men, and they tell him uh, what he must do, but he also has uh, the power to tell others what they must do. And his authority uh, is based on the fact that he's been given the rank of centurion. He has the might of Rome behind him. He is recognized as 
a military uh, leader, a man of some significance. And so uh, he knows that uh, he can say uh, to men, you do this, you do that, you go there, you come here, and people who work for him will obey his commands. And somehow or another, he's made the connection that, that Jesus has the authority of heaven behind him. And therefore, Jesus can command this infirmity to leave the young man, and it will happen. What a wonderful insight. The centurion is saying, when I speak, Rome speaks. I have the authority of Rome. That's why people uh, are compelled to do my bidding. But he goes this marvelous step forward in recognizing that when Jesus speaks, God speaks. Jesus has come with divine authority, divine authority on which the centurion is confident, has uh, uh, made his confidence that uh, his servant will be healed. And Jesus' response to this faith is remarkable also. He's astonished, we're told. It's a strong word. Jesus is astonished that the centurion should have such faith. Uh, and the astonishment is, is uh, because of this. Here is a, a rank outsider. He is one of the, the top-ranking uh, military officials. He's a representative of the colonial power role. Uh, he has presumably limited understanding of who Jesus is. And yet, he comes acknowledging that Jesus has come in God's power. He has outstripped in regard to faith the very people Jesus came for, the Jews. And Jesus is astonished. And we find that uh, practically, we find that historically, again and again and again. The people that would be most expected to come to faith are the people that we're, we're waiting on to, 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 to confess Jesus, are the people who hold out and are resistant to him. People with the privileges, the, 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 the time spent studying the Bible, the religious background, the pedigree. <coughs> Instead of confessing Christ, they become preoccupied with the bric-a-brac of life. And it's often those who have no advantages, who, who come, as it were, from a standing start, who've had all kinds of, of problematic upbringings or whatever, who are the ones who are brought into the kingdom. And Jesus lays down a frightening principle in the light of this. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here is that revolutionary principle of, of the gospel, that the insider is made the outsider, and the outsider is made an insider. The outsider becomes someone who gains intimacy with God, peace in his heart, a future secured. The stark reality of the, the two ways that were spoken of by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Here are the, the, the two very different termini. On the one hand, the banqueting table. On the other, outside with eternal resentment and darkness. So here's this Gentile centurion with such limited uh, knowledge and background, and yet uh, he recognizes the authority of Jesus and his request is granted. He becomes someone who uh, explains for readers such as us down through the the years uh, how it is that our Savior uh, has the power to heal and the power to save. He comes with the authority of God. And then finally, the final example is uh, shown to Simon Peter's mother-in-law. It's interesting, isn't it, that Simon Peter was married. We don't hear anything about his wife, uh, except we're told uh, later on in in one of Paul's epistles that that, uh, Peter's wife accompanied him on his missionary travels. And during Jesus' ministry, uh, Peter had a home in Capernaum. And there in the home in Capernaum, uh, Peter's wife's mother has fallen ill. She has a fever. Now, <laughs> the thing about this is it's, it's all quite kind of low-key, isn't it? Uh, of course, the fever, I expect, could have signified uh, a, a wide range of, of conditions. But to our ears, it doesn't sound that serious, but perhaps it was. But it's a very domestic situation, isn't it? Uh, the mother-in-law is unwell. And Jesus cares. Jesus cares. And immediately it, it's just a reminder of the, the grace of God reaching out to all kinds of people. Uh, there, there was the extreme case of the leper, wasn't there? I mean, he was way out there in terms of those whose, whose situation is really tough. If you've been in the church for many years, uh, sometimes if you hear lots of people's testimony, you know, people's stories of how they come to faith, sometimes in the church you only hear the ones that are way out there. You know, the, the guys that were on drugs or the people who've been in prison for some time. And you, you, sometimes, at least, I used to get the impression that it was, it was these types and these types only who had a testimony worth telling. And we have a reminder here that it's the, the ones who are not extreme cases like the, the leper or powerful and significant people like the centurion, but little old ladies like Peter's mother-in-law who are precious in the Saviour's sight and who are brought into the kingdom. That's one of the things that we, we learn from, from this incident. And the other thing which is stressed in the narrative is the, the, the suddenness and completeness of the healing. Immediately, we're told, she got up and served her. It's amazing. Again, it's so domestic. The mother-in-law is saved, and the first thing she does is make tea. <laughs> she gets up, and she doesn't have to have a lie down. You know, she is energized immediately by the Lord Jesus and able to, to get up and serve. His power is complete. Uh, his power is gracious. It comes to the little old ladies of the world, the mother-in-laws, the people who have a fever, the tenderness of Jesus. And then Matthew closes this little section with a summary. And his summary tells us that these healing miracles are simply 
illustrative of a wider healing ministry. Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him to drive out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. And Matthew says that this was in fulfillment of Isaiah's words. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. And as we said earlier, this, uh, in its wider context, is pointing to the fact that uh, all those things that, that Jesus is now confronting have come about as a result of sin. You know, the exclusion, illness, frailty, death. They would not be in God's creation had sin not entered. And now the remedy for sin has stepped onto his earth. And he is going to the cross as was prophesied. And from, uh, from the cross, healing streams will flow. Jesus has come to not only atone for sin, but to bring healing to all things that have occurred because of sin. And whilst the healing miracles are signs, and whilst Jesus did not cure every leper, that existed in Israel, or every mother-in-law, or every centurion. They come as signposts towards the day when sickness and sorrow and sign will flee away, when he comes to renew creation. And these incidents powerfully speak to us of the, the gathering in of people who are on the outside. That's, you know, feeling like an outsider is a very powerful and a very negative uh, emotion, isn't it? None of us like to be on the outside looking in. Maybe that's how you feel this morning, though, in, in a spiritual way. Still not on the inside. Still to be included. And there's a sense in which that's probably, that is a a proper sensation if you haven't yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when Paul is speaking to the Ephesians, he, he reminds them, remember at that time, you know, back in your pre-Christian days, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. And that's simply the reality. Uh, before we're Christians, before we've bowed the knee, given in, thrown in the towel, and received forgiveness. We are on the outside looking in. And the wonderful thing that takes place when we trust in Jesus is that we're brought in. We're made family. The great privilege that we have as, as Christians is to be made children of the Father. With Jesus as our elder brother, there is nothing greater in the whole world than that. And friends, that's what the gospel offers. That's the, the promise that's extended to anyone, even here this morning in church, who feels that they're still on the outside. Will you say yes to Jesus? Believe in his power to forgive your sins. And you will be made a son or a daughter of the living God. And in the deepest, fullest, most marvelous sense, inside. May God bless to us his blessed word.
to his name be praise and glory. Let's close.